I had a great childhood filled with confusion in the sense that I knew I didn't belong there. You know, an eagle cannot be raised by chickens and not know. I mean, you know, your body knows. Your mm-hmm. body keeps the score, as the book says. You know you are not like the others. You know, I think about Sesame Street. One of these things not like the others. Can you tell me which one it is? And it was me. Hi, it's Jennifer Diane Ghostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view, or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family, or simply want confirmation that you are not alone in your experience, wherever you are on the path of healing and pushing through a trauma. Wouldn't it be empowering to have many of your burning questions answered here? My next guest and I met this year, 2022, and it was a connection like no other. She's a late discovery adoptee from the Chicagoland area who moved to Nashville, Tennessee. She's a mother of one daughter and a published author of two books. Her name is Dr. Sib Brown. We met in the Adoptee Voices writing group created by Sarah Easterly. And when I listened to her written words, they resonated with me on so many levels. Her participation during the weeks that followed helped all of us feel seen with her excellent feedback and support. I asked her to read one of her pieces during this episode that she wrote in the group, and she said yes. It's sure to make you smile, maybe even chuckle, especially if you're from our generation and an adoptee. Dr. Sib Brown, affectionately called Dr. Sib, is a Vanderbilt-educated, Harvard-trained, two-time Emmy award-winning multimedia journalist, author, international speaker, and lecturer. Currently, Dr. Sib is a tenured professor of journalism at Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee. I learn so much from her each time we chat and never feel the least bit out of my league, though she has so much knowledge beyond my scope or frame of reference. Allow me to introduce to you someone who I've had the awesome opportunity to meet in person, not once, but three times during a pandemic, because we happen to reside in the same city, and she enjoys having a great time. She is articulate, humorous, and most interested in sharing with us what she's come to understand about the subject of adoption through her lived experience. Dr. Sib, I have been looking forward to having this conversation with you for months now, and I'm (laughs) so glad we finally have been able to make the time to to do this. And, you know, we have a lot in common, but aside from, from, you know, being black women, same generation, from Chicago, Chicagoland area, uh, moving to Nashville, parenting, besides that, what I'm excited about is you are such an intelligent person and I like to think of myself as very open-minded so when I get around people who are really smart and intellectual I'm like what am I going to learn like what what's going to happen to brighten my life inspire me more so I just want to say that first of all and I'm just happy for you to be here I'm thrilled that we've made this happen. And it's my fault, audience, that this was delayed, not hers. <laughs> um, 
but I'm, I'm happy. I learned as well, you know, and thank you for the compliments. I am a very self-degrading adoptee. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know we're going to have so much fun with our time together. And we met in Adoptee Voices, the writing group created by Sarah Easterly. I believe it was Cohort 6. And it would be there that I'd learn you, you live here in Nashville. And I'm like, what? And that we could at least make plans to meet in person, which we did. And we've done that on two occasions, the last time being downtown Nashville on the rooftop, enjoying live music and watching the sunset. And it's pretty special when you can be in the, the same room with someone. There is nothing like a Nashville sunset. You know, the funny part is, you know, the most beautiful skyline in the world to me is always going to be Chicago. <laughs> but the Nashville skyline has definitely expanded. But the, the view from that rooftop is just truly beautiful. Yeah, we had a really good time. I know you're a late discovery adoptee mm-hmm. and you learned at age 42. And we definitely. David, look, the funny part for writing purposes, the day before my 42nd birthday. Mm. Uh-huh. <laughs> mm, I've forgotten that. Wow. And I don't know yeah. if you want to start there because there's so many places we can start. Yeah, I mean, that starts, what I will say is this. I grew up in an area 45 miles north of Chicago, and it's the city of North Chicago. And I specify that because people who live in Chicago will tell you in a minute, you're in a suburb. You didn't live in the city. You didn't grow up here. Uh, and then people in my hometown, I want to honor them because it's a separate city. It is 45 miles south of Milwaukee and 45 miles north of Chicago. So near Waukegan, Great Lakes Naval Base. I'm a Navy brat. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father my father who raised me was in the military and retired in Illinois. So I'll start there because it's funny, you know, Jennifer, as we're thinking about and talking about this conversation, you know, we're not just adoptees. And for a while, I've been lost in that land. You know, I've been in, in immersed in that experience of just seeing myself just as an adoptee. Not to forget my past, but to better understand it. But fundamentally, I was raised in, as I mentioned, North Chicago. I went to all Catholic schools. Um, the youngest and only daughter, I have an older brother who is the biological child of my adoptive parents. And I didn't know. I was, uh, I didn't consciously know I was adopted. And I don't know if you were the same way. You know, I don't know if when you were told. Because when were you told? Were, did you know you were adopted or did you not know? So I don't ever remember not knowing I think it was just kind of age appropriately, the telling of my story. Mm-hmm. And I think that makes a huge difference. The other thing we have in common is same race adoption. Yes. Because, you know, as we've met so many other adoptees, many are in multiracial, biracial situations, whereas you and I are same race adoptees. You know, both parents were black. I know once I found out, my adoptive mom said she made a point to pick a child that looked like her family. Like she wanted to make sure the hue of my skin would blend in with the family, Mm -hmm. which I thought was very interesting. So anyway, fast forward, I I had a great childhood filled with confusion in the sense that I knew I didn't belong there. You know, an eagle cannot be raised by chickens and not know. I mean, you know, your body knows. Your Mm -hmm. body keeps the score, as the book says. You know you are not like the others. You know, I think about Sesame Street. One of these things not like the others. Can you tell me which one it is? And it was me. Um, So I knew that I had that feeling in my bones. As a kid, I would often say, I know I'm adopted. Tell me the truth. And of course, my family had all types of entertaining responses. One said, yeah, the cat dropped you off at the door. But 
again, looking into faces, genetic markers matter. You know, that's the one thing a lot of people don't understand about adoption. When you don't have your genetic mirroring, it leads to a life of confusion. Um, so for 41 years, 364 days, I lived in that confusion. So I was talking to a family relative through my adopted family. That's family. So, and that's the other thing that confuses you, all these new labels, terms, et cetera. My family's my family. You know, my mom is my mom my daddy's my daddy, but things changed. So at any rate, one of my cousins called to let me know a family member had passed away. I said, great, I get to go to another funeral where I look adopted. And the cousin said, that's because you are. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I finally confirmed what my body knew. Wow. Oh, wow. So as an LDA, what tools did you begin to use to process that added layer of trauma? There were no tools initially because, you know, the reaction from the family became, you turned out all right, forget that, you know, which is sadly often the case in adoption, that the adoptive family doesn't have the tools to address when the adoptee finds out. So basically it became, why do you need that your biological family when you have us attitude, which is often ignored now. Again, everything, I hallucinate everything. Nothing I say has happened. You know, believe what you choose to believe because gaslighting is real. You know, it's like you didn't say that. Okay, fine. At any rate, I waited another, let's see, that was 2010. Discovery was in December of 2010. In 2011, Illinois opened up the adoption records. And because they gave me access to my original birth certificate, I was able to petition the state of Illinois around 2011 and get my original birth certificate by 2012. I still held on to that information and actually did not begin my search seriously until late 2017. So seven years later, it took me that long to get the courage, the strength, the bravery to even begin to legitimately search. Mm. Yeah, we have that in common. I applied for my original birth certificate in 2011 and got it in 2012. Mm-hmm. And and on that, I would learn, on that document, I would learn that I was delivered at Salvation Army Hospital. And we have that in common as well, right? Correct. I did not find out about that until that moment as well. I had no idea because when you have an amended birth certificate at the time of my adoption, and I am what's considered, and you as well, a baby scoop era baby, babies born between 1945 to 1973, uh, there were so many put up for adoption, they called the baby scoop era which should give some people alarm bells. You know, there's something wrong when it becomes the baby scoop era. Uh, Part of that was due to interracial babies. Fathers, families didn't want the baby the daughter became pregnant with. That was infidelity, men at war, women here doing what they were doing and decided, hey, I've got to get rid of this sin and shame that I did. I've got to get rid of the evidence. Then you have the case of my mom who was a teenager. And I still don't know all the circumstances because I can't get all of the story. And I'll tell you why in a moment. So I am a baby scoop era baby born at the Salvation Army Hospital for unwed mothers that was on Pulaski and Foster on the north side of Chicago. However, my birth certificate says the one I still have to use says I was born at Cook County Hospital. When they amend you at adoption, they change my name. They change my parents' name. They declared my father dead. My biological father was not dead. But on the document, it says he was deceased. In addition, at that time, he was not deceased when I was born. 
And then he, uh, let's see what else. There's so much amended on birth certificates once you're adopted. You know, you're erased, which is a very dangerous practice that needs to be eradicated immediately. You know, you need to be who you were born, period. I agree. Just um, have two separate documents. It's, it's horrid not yeah. to have your original documentation. Yeah. So, yes, I found my mother's name was on there. My father's name was not. I Googled, you know, at that time, Jennifer, it's weird. I Googled to search for my mother, but I received information I didn't want to see and didn't want to believe at the time. And so fast forward, I'm on Ancestry because, of course, a lot of adoptees end up, you know, in the Ancestry DNA streets because we can't get answers. There's no one to tell us. And they've done so much work to hide information from us. I'm sure your detective skills became very valuable. So once I met someone on Ancestry, they were an investigator. And I was sharing information with that person. And they were able to confirm what I was seeing. I could see what they were seeing. And so we worked together. And we were able to find a biological relative on Facebook. Mm -hmm. And that's how I ended up finding confirming my biological family. And then once I confirmed that information, I also confirmed my mother died. My biological mother was dead and she died in 1984. So thanks to adults who were ashamed, I would never ever delay eyes on my mother. And I have to get over that. I have to get over everything. I have to move on with everything. That's what people keep telling adoptees, get over it, move on. Even though society at large is able to grieve, and, and able to have compassion and love and kindness. But for adoptees, it's always, you turned out all right, you get over it. Right, you don't. Right. You don't get over it. You no, don't no. get over you, being lied to for 40, um, almost 42 years of your life. You don't get over that. Yeah, you just learn to live with it. And, yes, and I too found a grave. So I do know how hard that is. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, we have, sadly, we have that in common, sadly. So when you were talking about um, searching, and and putting the pieces together, so to speak. I thought about you as a professor of journalism at Belmont University here in Nashville. Like, you are a journalist, so I'm sure that played a major part in helping you to um, investigate. Yes, absolutely. My natural curiosity, as well as the skill set that I've acquired from being a practicing journalist in my first life, first major career, and definitely, you know, digging through records, you know, being brave enough to contact strangers and making, you know, random phone calls, trying to, con you know, confirm who people are and, you know, ultimately meeting strangers. You know, my biological family was strange to me. You know, I got to meet them finally in person in 2018 and discovered I have a beautiful younger sibling. Mm -hmm. That Now that one is my heart. That's my heart. <laughs> and that, that, that's what keeps me sane. And yes, I'm thankful to meet my sibling. But when people say things like, at least, or you should be grateful. No. Why should I be grateful? I missed out on almost 50 years of life with a sibling. Right. I mean, who, who in their right regulated mind says things like that other than people who don't understand the system or people who are benefiting from that system or making money from the $14 billion adoption industry. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. I think about that too. I have, I found a sibling 22 months younger and my brother mm -hmm. and I, we just, you just kind of click. Uh, I yeah. see the nature piece. I'll put it like that. We yeah. look we look similar, but I see just the kind of way he moves in the world. I have yeah. that tendency. 
and I don't have history with him. I mean, when he was a kid and growing up and all the yeah. different things that happened over four decades, we don't have. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm right there with you. <laughs> so I recently was on this. I was actually an alternate panelist for Adoption Mosaic, founded by Ostrid Castro. And it was such a great panelist of four people and all parents, all adoptees. So the, the topic was parenting as an adoptee. So I wanted to pose the question to you. I don't think I've asked anybody on the show about this. So how has being an adoptee affected your parenting? Well, I was parenting blind. I was parenting blind for the first, what, 16 years of my child's life. Mm-hmm. You know, because adoption is trauma. And this is the piece people don't want to understand. We take our times to wean a puppy from the, the dog, from the mother. The mother dog is given more agency than a human being. So by taking a baby from a mother at birth, you are snatching away their attachment, their security, their trust. You are reorganizing their cellular structure. And this is all stuff I learned after the fact. So when you start to think about parenting, well, I'm parenting with a wounded inner child, not even knowing how wounded I was or what the wound was. So I'm parenting almost out of paranoia. Mm. I'm parenting in perfection. I'm parenting in this is the way you have to do it because it's the way I was taught to do it. So we all have to do it the same way. Even though in you, there's something going, something's off, something's not right. So all of a sudden finding out who I was and still discovering who I am in the midst of parenting is humbling and it's very strange because you think you know what you're doing until you realize you don't. And that could happen to anyone, but when you discover you had a trauma that's been driving your life, you know, the trauma was governing my decisions. I'm making decisions, fear-based decisions because of trauma I didn't realize I had yet it was in complete control. Mm. Yeah, what came up for me with that question was that when I did search and, well, during the search period, I brought my son along with me. He was 20 at the time, and mm-hmm. I would share with him what I was finding. And and he just seemed to be like, well, why would you care? Why would you be bothered? And um, he, he really didn't see the need, right, uh, the importance. But it, he did come around to, if it's important, to you than it's important to me. And yet I kept wondering, why doesn't he see this importance? And it dawned on me because I hadn't been seeing the importance. I mean, I was 48 when I started, 47, 48, when I started really deciding to search. So there had been no conversations through his childhood. He knew I was adopted, but he knew nothing about the language, we'll say, in adoption land. And it it would be like decades later that I would say this is important to me. So how could he even think it was right? Like I wasn't parenting Mm -hmm. from the perspective that being separated from my original family is a big deal. I wasn't doing that. Yeah. So it made sense that he would not see the importance like overnight. And, and in these years that I've been in reunion, uh, these 10 years with my maternal side in particular, he has come to learn the language. He, I would say he is adoption fluent now because 
I've been talking about it. You know, I've been very mm -hmm. connected to the community and and I've learned the language or some of it. And that didn't happen overnight. It took about, I would say, 10 years. So, yeah, I uncovered quite a bit about how I was parenting as well. And I think I was parenting from a totally disconnected space of being an adoptee and an adopted person. Even though I was telling people, I was not feeling the feelings. And if I was doing anything, I was just thinking about it in my head, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we live in our heads because that's a safe place. That's one thing Primal Wound, Dr. Nancy Verrier's book, Primal Wound, she talks about how much we live in our head. And there's another book, too. I can't think of the name of it right off. I was trying to dig through a box of books to have everything at my fingertips. But there's another book that just talks about how people who experience trauma, we stay in our heads. We get trapped in our head. Something outside may or may not be happening in real time, but in our head, in that narrative, in our coping mechanisms, we stay in our head. And so as parents, that's bad in terms of for the, you know, the children that we're raising because we have to deal with the reality, not what we're thinking in our head. Yeah. To your point, you know, my child is going on 21 and has a great compassion for adoptees and also a no-nonsense approach as well. You know, I giggle. They are the truth serum to me, mm -hmm. you know, to give me the reality check and that stop sign of, you know, don't go down, down that road too far or, or, okay, I get it. It's time for you to switch directions. So I appreciate the light that they bring to my life in that sense, because they won't allow me to go farther than I need to go down certain paths. Right. So reverse parenting, it's parenting up in some ways. What would you say has been the most rewarding thing about being better connected to the adoption community? Oh, people that understand. I mean, as soon as you say something, you know, you want to be understood and you want to be heard. You know, adoptees, listen. You know, not all, of course, <laughs> but there are a good number of them who actually listen. They hear you. They not only hear you, they feel you. Mm -hmm. You know, I think about just a smile, just the knowing you know, when, when you look at somebody and they smile at you or wave at you on the street and you both nod and smile at the same time, there's a powerful energy exchange there. So when you're in a community of adoptees who, especially late discovery adoptees, who understand that violation, especially those who, like me, find out by accident, so to speak. It was always supposed to be a secret, yet everybody knew the secret but you, and you are the secret. Mm. So finally being able to talk to somebody about that was life-giving you know it was life-changing because you don't feel crazy because society tells you to be thankful be grateful and be quiet go sit down your life is perfect you're successful you're a professor you're an author you have this and you have that but if you don't have peace of mind you have nothing yeah and so being with adoptees was a safe peaceful place because i knew they got it they get it they may not have had the exact experience but they had the common sense to understand, hey, I believe what you're saying because I know it happened and I know it's affecting you and I see you doing your best to deal with the reality in which you've been forced to live. Mm, that brings me to knowing that you had the opportunity to meet podcast host Sandria and Dr. Sam when you were in Chicago. I think it was last year. 
Was it this year? Last year? The uh, Black to the Beginning. Yes, Black podcast. to the Beginning. I was so excited to find them. Because they're because both the, late discovery adoptees. So tell me what that was like meeting them in person. It was wonderful. We dined together. Also, another adoptee, Kevin Anthony Johnson and Dr. Katari Coleman were with us as well. And we were in Hyde Park. And we just sat there and shared our stories, shared our journeys. It was just reaffirming, especially to be with, again, Black adoptees adopted by Black parents. Mm -hmm. Because, again, we're minorities within a minority. You know, it's just we always find ourselves in this precarious position. Yeah. You know, even as I've done my research, most of the research in these books specify and say white adoptions when they're talking about the baby scoop era, because it was uncommon mm -hmm. for black babies to be put up for adoption. I'm glad you, know, you said that. Yeah, I'm glad. You, yeah, that's really important. Because Thank black you. families typically sent you if you lived in the north, they sent the baby south. If you lived in the south, they sent the baby north. And typically a parent, I mean, sorry, a relative would raise that child. And you, and you know what else? Yeah, the kinship adoption. And you know yeah. what else is interesting? I've had uh, people be surprised, black and white, that I wasn't a transracial adoptee. Same thing. But the funny <laughs> part was I, I almost was. The mm. dehumanizing part of this is I was told the white family that had me couldn't afford to buy me. Mm. Therefore, by default, I ended up in the family I ended up with. And in that, in that regard, not default in terms of the family being bad, but just it was a default mechanism. I didn't go with family A, I went with family B. In addition, which a lot of people I know will be surprised to learn, there's a return clause on adoptees. So when an adoptive family takes out the adoptee, checks them out of the library, they can return the baby. Mm. In my adoption decree, which I have, it basically says you have passed the return date. Hmm. And therefore, this adoption can be confirmed. See, decreed. I got to pull out my adoption decree. I, I probably overlooked that. Yeah, it, it's there. It, 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 wow. It's amazing. This process is dehumanizing. People ask, you know, are you for or against adoption? I am for making sure all babies are loved, nurtured, and taken care of in their natural families primarily first. If the mother is dead or beyond rehabilitation, dead or beyond rehabilitation. If not, you see all these movies, you see these kids on movies and TV shows and the news and every place else. Their mama could be the worst person in the world. and They still want their mama. I mean, you, you, you know, worst person in the sense of worst behaviorally, because mm -hmm. not a bad person, but have the worst actions or, or the worst record or the worst situation. But you want your mom. You want your mama. Sure. You know, it's not to say someone else can't help with someone else's child, but to take somebody else's child and pretend that child is yours and lie to that child and tell that child there's somebody else, that's criminal, psychologically damaging, and it's proven over and over and over again. You know, people don't want to talk about 16% of adoptees. 16% of serial killers are adoptees. Look it up. 16% of serial, serial killers are adoptees. The Parkland shooter in Florida was an adoptee. When I went and Jennifer looked at his background, as I'm doing my own research, adoptee syndrome all day long. But psychology won't recognize that syndrome because, again, it's a $14 billion business. There's a monetary reason to ignore collectively what we as adoptees already know, that there are some traits and characteristics 
that are present in a disproportionate number of adoptees. Some facts here, and I appreciate that. Oh, oh I'm, I'm an educator, journalist, and I'm me. Well, I know you're also an, an author, a published author of, of two books. Yep. So let's talk about that. Uh, which one you want to start with? Well, I'm going to start with this first to make you laugh. So again, <laughs> as you well know, and this is this, what I'm saying isn't a surprise to Jennifer. I'm talking to her as if she is you, our audience. <laughs> so Primal Wound, Dr. Nancy Verrier, once again, and that book blew my mind. That was the first book on adoption that I ever read in my life. And that would have been around 2018 when I read that book, 2017, 2018. So in it, she says something to the effect that being an overachiever is a coping mechanism. So as I sit here getting a bachelor's, as I sit here getting a master's, as I sit here getting a PhD, as I sit here writing books, as I sit here doing da 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 you know, being an overachiever is, is you're trying to make yourself feel better for being rejected at birth. Mm-hmm. It's unconscious desire to be whole. Mm-hmm. And so trying to do these things in my past was an unconscious attempt to make myself whole. So both books, came about in different ways, interesting ways. So the first one is the colorful alphabet book. It should hopefully still be available on Amazon. But fundamentally, I went to the store to buy books for my daughter when she was little, and the alphabet books either had white people or animals. Nothing wrong with either one of those, but I wanted my child to see herself. So I wrote a book with the just the letters of the alphabet. A was for amazing, and B is for this, that, and the other, but just positive Black images, so our children can get a good sense of who they are. The second book was Innovate Lessons from the Underground Railroad. I went to the National Underground Railroad Museum in Cincinnati as part of a church trip, St. John Missionary Baptist Church in Hendersonville. Shout out to my fam, Pastor (laughs) Bell and and, uh, Sister Bell. But I went there as part of a church trip, and as I sat just listening to the story of the Underground Railroad, watching that story, experiencing it because it's a wonderful museum that was where the seeds for that book was planted i also had taken a trip to the battlefield at gettysburg which was a fascinating experience they had one of the foremost experts there talking and i'm sitting in the dirt with a notebook taking notes not knowing why this has captivated me so and fast forward i end up writing a book and i had all my notes and everything right in front of me so but the book really just talks about the Underground Railroad as among the most innovative networks in U.S. history. You know, we don't look at that as a network. You know, you had a leaderless movement. You couldn't destroy it. The Underground Railroad still exists. It never ceased operation. Um, And it was a conduit for enslaved Africans to rediscover their freedom. Yeah. I look forward to reading that. Girl, I need to reread it. I wrote that book in 2013, and at post 50, the memory goes pop, 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 pop. It's hilarious. I really did write the book, <laughs> but you know, post 50, your memory is like, oh, wow. Right. I, I will say this being post 50, realizing you're an adoptee is a really different position. You have quite a few adoptees who, because of the life stage, life cycle that we're in, it's, it's just a different space. You know, I would really like to write about being 50 and being adopted because you, you never stop being adopted right. and you never stop thinking of yourself as a child because some of us never stop thinking of ourselves as being a child like Peter Pan because you're unmoored. You, you were separated from your mom at birth. You separated me from my anchor. 
Yes, you tried to reattach me, but a reattachment is not the original. You can't just take one umbilical cord and attach it to another person. Now, does that mean adoptive parents are bad? No, it doesn't. Adoptive parents do the best they can with the hand they've been dealt. But you've got to be able to admit this ain't my child by blood. And the child needs to know who he, she, or they are is, however you want to say it. You need to make sure that person knows who they are. And if an adoptive parent or parents aren't mature enough to let that adoptee have a healthy relationship with the biological family, you don't need to adopt. Because wanting your core is natural and normal. And there are so many adoptive children who have been shamed, blamed, guilted, and ruined because they want to know who they are and meet their biological family. Yeah, It has to be said. I mean, people yeah. don't, you know, this, I wouldn't wish this on anybody because you don't heal from it. You don't get over it. You learn to live with it. As you mentioned earlier, you don't get through this. And someone listening. Yeah. You put words to, to, to what mm -hmm. is so real. And mm -hmm. I'm sure someone listening received that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And you're not crazy. You're not alone. You're right. not crazy. And, and adoptees are in different spaces and places. There are some adoptees who believe they are and are, I won't say believe they are, they're, they're well-adjusted. But part of that is, have you been indoctrinated? Part of that is, have you really realized how it does affect you? You know, I would have said I was fine. Years ago, I would have been the same way. Oh, I'm fine. Everything's good. Yeah. But my trauma tells on me. Yeah, and then you don't know till you know. Like, in yeah. the last even three to five years, I'm, I've uncovered things that are going on in my body uh, yeah. that I really wasn't paying attention to, you know, whether it's the anxiety mm -hmm. and, or just how do I feel about something? I've just been thinking for so many years and not really sitting with feelings. And until someone brings it to your attention, you don't know that you don't know. Well, thinking is safe. <laughs> and you're a doggone, you're a doggone good police detective because you were always in your mind. Always. You could think. And we always, again, defense mechanism. We think about every scenario. If I make this decision, what can happen? Because we're trying to make up for, we couldn't control being taken from our mothers. So therefore we're trying to control the rest of our lives. Mm. We don't want anything out of control. And so understanding that is powerful because that way now I can take a step back and say, you know what, you go ahead and drive. You know, I'm always the driver. Like I've always like, I'll drive, I'll drive. Yeah, you know. same here. <laughs> Trying to control it's, it's something. A, yeah, it's a defense mechanism. <laughs> I mean, we lost our moms. Yeah, and we didn't get a funeral. We didn't get to grieve. We didn't get to grieve when we lost her at birth, and you don't even get to grieve when you find out she's gone. Mm. Mm. So then I searched for my father. Nobody knew who my father was because my mother didn't tell him. She didn't trust anybody to tell them. However, another person in the mix, and I'm, I'm very careful of what I'm saying right now, just because people are alive and I don't know who wants to be part of this story and who doesn't. And therefore, I like to protect their privacy. But someone else in the mix knew my mother and my father, knew when my mother got pregnant, knew when she was sent away. And I didn't encounter that person until last year. So that person was hilarious because on Ancestry, once again, I have a search angel, shout out to my search angels, all of you who helped me on this journey. And my search angel and I had built the tree out to figure out who my father was. And towards the end, because she had taught me what to do, I figured out who my father was.
by calling strangers once again. So I matched a cousin, called that cousin. That cousin said, hey, this person in our family knows everything. Called that person. And immediately when I talked to her, she said, your father is so-and-so junior. And I was like, huh? And this was September last year. So imagine, again, post-50, finding out who you are. Yeah, so that's, found out, that's fresh, yeah, too, last found year. Out who my, yeah, just found out who my father was. He died in 1982. Mm. So my, fa- my, mother, my father died in 1982. My mother died in 1984. So I found two graves. So these people in this adoption process thought it was cool, all right, for me not to be able to meet either one of my parents. Mm. Now, with all that being said, would I change anything? No. My parents did a great job. I'm fine with that. The way it is, is the way it is. I wouldn't change it. However, I would have preferred to hear the truth from my adoptive family, not someone else. Right. Yeah. And and I think that's why it's so important for us adult adopted people to speak out because this is the only way people can say, maybe take a look at how to do adoption way different than it was done in the 60s and so forth. So, Well, now they're doing open adoptions, but they're not open because again, you're dealing with adoptive parents. The adoptive parents have all the power. So some adoptive parents have been told and some adoptive parents have misrepresented themselves saying that they would stay in contact with the biological family and they don't. They hide letters. They, they make the child think the adoptive family isn't there because the, the, the biological family isn't there because the biological family isn't perfect. Yeah, We're well, that, there's you. no excuse now to say you didn't know, like because you're hearing from adult, adopted people, particularly when I think of LDAs who are saying, hey, wait a minute. That layer, unnecessary layer, you don't, don't do that. Don't do that. Yeah, you're right. That's a good way to say that, Jennifer, an unnecessary layer of trauma. Because that's trauma on top of trauma. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. So, you know, we met through uh, the writing group, and I had the opportunity to hear your pieces. I mean, you're just a brilliant writer. And I hope that you will, before we wrap up, I hope you'll share a piece, uh, one of your pieces. Absolutely. (laughs) I'm ready. I'm ready. The computer had gone down, but I'm ready. So (laughs) during this adoptee writers workshop, which was so therapeutic for me, it was therapeutic to be in the space with other writers, other adoptees, many, many gifted writers we heard. And so shout out to cohort six. (laughs) I was in two, I was in two writing groups at the same time. Yeah. Talking about the right one, but I enjoyed both tremendously and I would recommend them for any Uh, adoptees out there and I wasn't asked to recommend them but I'm just telling you it benefited me greatly just to give me a moment to exhale and to look forward to hearing somebody else's story so you don't feel so alone Uh, but also to give my words wind meaning again just writing on a computer and in your head all the time isn't always the healthiest thing to do so without further ado you ready Jennifer this is my last question I usually ask every guest is there anything I didn't ask you that you want to share that wherever you are on your adoption journey, you're okay. Just realize there's a support system at every turn. You know, there are some who are just finding out who are in what's called the fog, and they're really trying to figure out what what does this mean? I mean, I'm adopted. I didn't realize it had an effect on me. Then all of a sudden, you're coming out of the fog realizing how it did affect you mm. and trying to make sense out of where you are now. And then there are others who have made peace with it all and just said, you know what, it is what it is. I'm going to just keep foraging forward. As they hit obstacles, they leap them and keep going. You know, they're building more and more muscle as you go forward. So wherever you are on the journey is where you are, and that's okay. Uh, But I would encourage you to read, 
read, read, read. There are a bunch of YouTube videos. There's a great YouTube video by Paul Sunderland. Indeed, mm, yes. Paul Sunderland's video will give you life. And I mentioned Dr. Uh, Nancy Verrier's book, Primal Wounds. You also got Journey of the Adopted Self by Betty Jean Lifton. And Betty Jean Lifton has several books out there. You've got Adoption Healing by Joe Soul, S-O-L-L, Joe Soul, Adoption Healing. You've got Coming Home to Self, also by Nancy Verrier. So there, I mean, that, that's just really quick books that have more of the theory, the trauma behind it. Of course, there are great memoirs, of course, by yourself, and mine is forthcoming. So as I read this excerpt from my memoir, I hope you guys will enjoy and appreciate it. You ready for me, Jen? Oh, that was so good. Thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. All right, here we go. So this is a piece that I shared during our Adoptee Writers Workshop. One, two, three, pause. Four, five, six, seven, eight. Left, right, left, pause. Right, left, right. That's the count for a dance called Chicago Steppin'. The phrase was coined by DJ Sam Chapman in the 1970s to describe the dance movements. In 2011, I decided to learn how to step in Nashville. Mind you, again, I grew up 45 minutes from Chicago and was rarely, if ever, exposed to the dance. How did I miss such a necessary step in my growth and development? One word, rap. Oh, you thought I was going to say boys, didn't you? Nope. It was the Sugar Hill Gang with Rapper's Delight. I said a hip, hop, a hippity, a hippity, hip, hip. Oh, just look it up on YouTube. We needed love from LL Cool J, Dougie Fresh, and The Slick, The Show, Curtis Blow, These Are the Breaks, Salt and Pepper Pushing, and so many more. And then there was Prince, Michael Jackson, Atlantic Star, Midnight Star, Cameo, The Gap Band, and so much music to keep us on our Sony Walkmans for hours. So yeah, we kind of miss the boat on learning how to Chicago step. Stepping is a lifestyle that brings me so much joy. It's an opportunity to be around people and to allow my mind and vagus nerve to relax. The vagus nerve runs the length of the spine and connects as a central line in the body. When it's triggered, it's hard to focus and to remain calm. It's called to action in our flight or fight response. Dancing takes concentration. A partner is leading you through the eight count dance, and it could be six count as well. Paying attention to your partner's shoulders helps to see where he may turn or move you. We travel all over the world just for stepper sets. The weekends include a Friday and Saturday night set lasting about five hours each. On Saturday, there may be workshops to practice stepping, and then on Sunday, there's a going away set and brunch. Peace awaits me on the dance floor. A man's strong arms and lingering cologne make me forget my thoughts as I do my best not to embarrass myself. Yet my true adoptee colors are always present. More than one man has told me to relax while dancing. In my mind, I am relaxed. I'm counting, concentrating, trying to get the moves just right. Anticipation is the enemy of stepping. You must go where the lead sends you. You can't control the dance, only your movements. It's fun, it's exhilarating, and often terrifying because everyone can watch. A misstep is public record. So I will stop there because the dance is so much a reflection of being adopted. It's just hilarious because you have to trust 
the other person to lead you. And sadly, a lot of adoptees have trust issues because our trust was broken when we were removed from our mothers at birth. So I will share that with you. I don't know if you have anything else for me, but that was the piece. I hope you all enjoyed it. I love it. I love it. And, you know, I had to put my mute button on because there are times I just start laughing and I, I, I'm smiling. <laughs> and I, when you first read that piece in the group, I said, oh, wow, this is great. You know, I can so identify with it and your words. I love how you string them together. So this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation with me. No problem. It was well worth the wait. Again, that was on me. <laughs> thank you for having me and thank you for letting me be me. And I'm so excited about your, your memoir. I can't wait until it's out there. Me too. I just have to get over that procrastination and the fear. The fear, because I will share this really quickly. The reason a lot of people aren't quick to share their stories is because like Tina Turner, the legend herself said in her own documentary, you are trapped in your trauma. Once you share it, you are trapped in it. You cannot say, most people cannot say Tina Turner's name without saying Ike, yet they cannot name the love of her life that she's married to now. They met in 1986. What is Tina Turner's husband's name? A lot of people just don't know. And as a result of listening to her to talk about being trapped in her trauma, it has caused me to pause because I also don't want people to leverage that, you know, to get re-traumatized by your own trauma. Mm. Because people on the street will see you and say, well, you should be satisfied. Right. You know, your parents did the best they could. No one's saying my parents didn't do the best they could. And no, I'm not going to be satisfied losing my parents and never, ever getting to see my biological parents. No, I'm not going to apologize for being upset that I never saw who I looked like growing up. Mm. That is such an unsettling situation that, I, again, I wouldn't wish on anyone. Right. Thank you for sharing so, that. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, but all in all, you know, I speak deliberately, I speak intentionally, but I'm still filled with joy. You know, two things can be true. I'm as happy as I can be, and I'm affected by adoption. I knew this conversation with Dr. Sib would be informative and so much fun. After our recording, we made plans to get together and enjoy a night out near the lake where I live to watch a beautiful sunset. She is one of the most spontaneous people I know, and I can appreciate that since it's not one of my strengths yet. I'm sure you caught all the facts about this thing called relinquishment and adoption that can be quite painful, especially when you go four decades of not knowing that about yourself. And how finding out from someone other than your adoptive parents adds another layer of trauma. As a late discovery adoptee, she is still coming to terms with accepting the truth about lost years that prevented her from having the possibility of meeting her biological parents before their deaths. As adoptees, we don't necessarily get over things, but rather learn to live with the truth of our adoption stories. One of my favorite parts during our time together was her guidance at the end by saying, wherever you are on the adoption journey is where you are. And that's okay. Just realize there's a support system at every turn. Thank you, Dr. Sib, first and foremost, for embracing me here in Nashville. Your kindness is undeniable. Thank you for having this conversation with me for the listening audience. You inspire me to stay the course in so many ways. I always look forward to hearing what you have to say about a myriad of things 
especially that being an adoptee doesn't ever have to hold us back from life-giving experiences. If you seek to be an ally of the adoption community, I hope you will consider making a donation to keep the show going at patreon.com forward slash adopteeland. Your contribution allows me to present a weekly episode free of advertisement and is greatly appreciated to add a valuable resource to the adoption community.